Hey everyone, it's me, Dory, and this is an exclusive audio excerpt of my book, Thanks for Waiting, The Joy and Weirdness of Being a Late Bloomer. I think I've mentioned the anecdote that I tell in the chat, one of the chapters that I'm going to read on the podcast. It's about the breathalyzer salesman. So if you've been curious about that chapter, here it is for you. And there's another chapter that I read here, which is, oh, chapter 10. Oh, yeah, where I talk about my sister getting married. There's just, there's just a lot there. So I am, like I said, I'm just so excited to have this excerpt from my audiobook here. If this piques your interest, feel free to download it at Libro.fm, on Audible, wherever you get your audiobooks, or buy it in print. And I hope you enjoy this. A few weeks after I moved into my new apartment, it was the week of the annual CMJ event in New York, a music festival that showcased up-and-coming bands at various venues around the city. And my friend Claire, who worked for a music marketing agency, had invited me out to see some shows. We started the night at a small party at a bar on the Lower East Side. Then she got a text from a coworker that he was at Bowery Ballroom, a venue on Delancey Street that wasn't too far, so we headed over there. I was feeling confident, hot even, and a little tipsy, but not too drunk. Just the right amount of drunk where things seem possible. I was wearing a skin-tight, mackage leather jacket that I'd bought at the Bloomingdale's in Soho a few days earlier. It had cost a fortune, $400. I couldn't afford it, but I'd bought it anyway. I'd been ghosted by a guy I'd gone out with a few times whom I developed some budding, this could turn into something, feelings for. He apparently did not feel the same way. Even if I never saw him again, I wanted to make sure I looked good if I did happen to run into him. So good that he would rue the day he hadn't returned my texts. I called it my revenge jacket. I felt sexy and powerful and badass in it. Definitely not like someone who would get ghosted. Revenge jacket Dory behaved differently than I did. She was fun and spontaneous and a little bit wild. She for sure didn't overthink things. She was always up for whatever. She was the life of the party. She was someone I had never been, never thought I could be, and now somehow sort of was. I simultaneously loved and hated her. When we got to Bowery Ballroom, we found Claire's coworker. He was with a friend, a blonde, hipsterish guy visiting from North Carolina. The friend seemed a little bland, but cute and wide-eyed, like this was his first time in the big city. We started talking, and then as the electropop performer Dom took the stage, we were making out, and the next thing I knew, we were on the subway going back to my apartment. What do you do, anyway? I asked as we snuggled on the F train. 
I was trying to pay attention so we wouldn't miss my transfer, but this spontaneous, unexpected encounter was exciting. I realized I knew basically nothing about this guy except that he was a friend of a coworker of a friend. Vetted, but barely. I'm a breathalyzer salesman, he said. I laughed. Okay, I said. I was pretty sure he was just using it as a line. Like, he knew that saying he was a breathalyzer salesman would appeal to a New Yorker who trafficked in irony. Something I could tell my friends the next day over all-you-can-drink brunch while we snort-laughed our mimosas out of our noses. If I had been the type of New Yorker who went to all-you-can-drink brunches. I hadn't ever pictured what a breathalyzer salesman looked like, but I would have put money on one being older, perhaps slightly heavyset, definitely wearing khakis. In fact, I hadn't ever considered where police departments procured breathalyzers in the first place. Amazon? Breathalyzer.com? Definitely not from a 20-something in red-winged boots and a beanie visiting his friend in New York and going to an indie rock show. We had sex, my first true one-night stand, and in the morning, as we were lying in bed, I said, that was funny how last night you said you were a breathalyzer salesman. He laughed. I am a breathalyzer salesman. So wait, I said, really? Really, he said. I drive around and sell breathalyzers to police departments. He paused and looked around my bedroom. Can I ask how old you are? I'm 30, I said quickly. I was actually 33, but I instinctively felt like I needed to take three years off my age. Why was he even asking anyway? Wasn't asking someone's age one of those things you weren't supposed to do, especially after a one-night stand? He seemed surprised. Really? You're 30? He paused. I wouldn't have guessed. I laughed a little nervously. Did he mean that I didn't look 30? Or did he mean that he couldn't believe that a 30-year-old was acting the way I was? getting drunk and taking a virtual stranger home and sleeping with him? But didn't 30-year-olds do that all the time? Even 33-year-olds? How old are you, I asked. 28, he said. I guess I was surprised that you're 30 because I'm the only one of my friends back home who still isn't married. So I was wondering if you were my age yet, but also... I guess I should have figured you were older because you live alone in New York. Oh, well, thanks, I said. What's it like being the only single friend? I guess that's one good thing about living in New York. There's still plenty of single 30-year-olds. Well, I live alone, but I own my house, he said. Wow, I said again, looking around the apartment that I shared only with my dog, Lee. I couldn't imagine being the only one of my friends who wasn't married at 28. 28? I hadn't even met John, the first person I thought I might marry at 28. 28 was when I had gone back to school, when I had left Philly for good, when I shared a shitty apartment with Allison on a shitty block in Williamsburg. My life had barely begun at 28. 
After he left, I noticed the revenge jacket on the floor. I must have just tossed it when we had come in the night before. I sat down on my couch and held it for a moment. Where did revenge jacket Dory end, and where did the real me begin? It was getting exhausting, feeling like I was toggling between identities. How much more validation from men would be enough? A couple of weeks later, I was once again at the bar down the street, the one where I'd met Tim, who thankfully wasn't working that night, for a friend's birthday party. There was a guy there, Lewis, who had been a couple of years ahead of me in college. We weren't close friends, but we'd run in the same social circles. I hadn't seen him much since college, but he looked the same, like a perpetual grad student, but an incredibly hot perpetual grad student. He was soft-spoken, with delicate tortoiseshell glasses and a wry affect. In college, Daniel and I had both crushed on him from afar, in the way that you might admire a famous person, always referring to him by his full name, Lewis Foster. Dory, he said. Lewis seemed genuinely pleased to see me. How are you? We started talking, and as the night wore on, we retreated to a nook by the window. And then we looked up, and we were the only ones left from the party. So, do you live around here, he asked. I nodded. Do you want to get out of here? I did. I felt like this was the culmination of my ugly duckling turning into a swan moment. I was going to hook up with Lewis Foster. This was really happening. I thought back to college, when I was a sophomore and he was a senior, and whenever I'd see him at a party, usually with his messenger bag and wool crew neck sweater, I would literally swoon. I resisted the urge to text Daniel to give him an update in real time. He was going to die when I told him. We got back to my place and immediately made our way to the bedroom. And very quickly, before I really knew what was happening, we were naked. Um, I said hesitating, I don't want to have sex. It would have been so easy to just have sex with Lewis. But something was holding me back. It was almost as if now, 10 years after college, I still couldn't totally believe it was happening. And if I slept with him, then my crush from afar would turn into an obsession. He scoffed. What, are you afraid I'm not going to be nice to you if we have sex? He practically spat it out. I was so taken aback, I didn't know how to respond. So this was who he was? I don't know, I said, faltering. The air in the room changed, and suddenly, I didn't even want to make out with him anymore. But I just don't. He seemed put out, like he had had a very specific vision of how the night was going to go. And then it didn't go that way, and he was going to make sure I knew it. He didn't press it, though, and we eventually fell asleep. In the morning, it seemed like he'd forgotten the conversation. We made out a little bit more, and as he left, he said he'd call me. He didn't call me the next day, or the day after, 
And after a week, I realized he was never going to call. And then I felt pathetic that even after he had been so mean, I still wanted him to call. I no longer felt like a swan. I felt like an ugly duckling who had grown up into a marginally more attractive duck. Like a duck who had gotten her braces off but would always be a duck. And ducks are cute, but they're not swans. I can't believe you hooked up with Lewis Foster. Oh my God, Daniel said when I told him that Lewis and I had gone home together. So what was he like? Honestly, I said, he was kind of an asshole. A few days later, I got an email from Karen's boyfriend, who lived with her in Washington, D.C., asking if he could call me the next day to discuss something. Of course, I responded. Hey, so I've decided to propose to your sister, he said when we got on the phone. I had just left the gym and was walking down the street in the West Village. I stopped in a doorway, and I wanted to let you know. Congratulations, I said. That's so exciting. When are you going to do it? I was happy for her, but it also just cemented for me how upside down I felt about my place in my family. My sister was 26, a full seven years younger than me, and she was already getting engaged. Meanwhile, I was sleeping with breathalyzer salesmen, not sleeping with college crushes, and inventing elaborate fantasies centered around a leather jacket. It was clear which one of us had grown up first. How much longer could I tell myself I was just taking time to figure things out? It never occurred to me to invite Luke to my sister's wedding. Even if we'd been seeing each other on a normal relationship cadence, we'd only been hanging out for three months or so, not long enough where I was ready to introduce him to my family, let alone ask him to be my date to a family wedding. But as I took the train to D.C. that Friday morning in November 2011, I couldn't help but think about the fact that I was going to my little sister's wedding alone. I was 34. She was 27. Shouldn't it have been the other way around? I was excited for Karen and excited to spend the weekend celebrating, but I also felt melancholy. When was it going to happen for me? Then I immediately felt guilty for feeling melancholy. This weekend shouldn't be about me, but it was hard not to feel constantly reminded that I was single and old. At Karen's bachelorette party in August, I spent the weekend with her best friends from high school and college and sleepaway camp, all of whom were her age and half of whom were also either already married or engaged and sporting large, shiny diamonds. They had law degrees and MBAs and beautifully blown-out hair. They are on a different path. I had to remind myself, but why wasn't I content to take that path, too? We played games, like one where Karen had to answer questions about her fiancé, Steve. Someone had hired a stripper who showed up in a cop's uniform. I'd never been to a bachelorette party before, 
My friends who were married either hadn't had them or I wasn't close enough to them to have been invited. At my sister's bridal shower, which I co-hosted with my brother's fiancé, my brother and his fiancé had gotten engaged over the summer, so now I would definitely be the last of my siblings to get married, if I ever did. At her apartment on the Upper East Side, Karen's best friend sat next to her as she opened her presents, weaving the ribbons from the gift wrap into a hat. Where had she learned about this ribbon hat making, I wondered. I had never been to a bridal shower, and I marveled at yet another womanly ritual that I had somehow completely missed. As we were about halfway through the gift opening, my mother whispered, Where's your gift? What do you mean, I said. I'm hosting the party. I didn't get her a gift. My mother looked horrified. You're still supposed to get a gift, she said. I can't believe you didn't get a gift. How was I supposed to know, I said. I legitimately meant it. Suddenly, I was back at sleepaway camp, watching as Rachel applied lip gloss in the mirror so she could go meet her boyfriend in the soccer field. As Lisa shaved her legs in the middle of the girls' area the summer we were 12. As the other girls wrote their letters home in bubble letters, putting hearts where the dot in the eye went. Once again, it was as if when every other girl was born, a nurse had handed their parents a handbook with instructions on how to be a girl. But the day I was born, the copy machine at the hospital was broken, and the nurse had just looked at me and told my parents, well, she'll just have to figure it out. I'm sure she'll be fine. And it was mostly fine, and I had figured out a lot of things for myself, and in fact, I had made the conscious choice to not participate in a lot of the things in the handbook. But every so often, I was reminded that this whole world of social codes and cues and expectations existed, and I had just somehow missed it. My sister hadn't missed it. My mom didn't seem to have missed it, but here I was getting shamed for not bringing a gift to a bridal shower and watching as my sister put a hat made of ribbons on her head as everyone clapped. My sister and I were close. We texted and chatted on Gchat every day, but I'd never felt more like the moody Daria to her sunny, carefree Quinn. In D.C., the day after I arrived, the other bridesmaids and I gathered in Karen's hotel suite to get ready. She had gotten all of us satin robes with our initials on them as bridesmaids' gifts. I also had never been a bridesmaid, and now, in my sister's hotel suite, as a hairstylist curled my hair and a makeup artist applied false lashes to my eyes, I made a mental note. If I ever got married— I should get my bridesmaids' gifts. All the bridesmaids had dresses in the same shade of purple silk. Most of my sister's friends were tiny. They looked like delicate violets, and I looked like Barney, towering over them in my uncomfortable heels. At the reception, I mostly stuck with my brother and his fiance. My sister was drunk and happy, and I was happy for her. But for me, 
getting married had never seemed so far out of reach. 